Food Tech Stars, powered by ACT Food Tech. Israel is home to one of the most vibrant, forward-thinking food tech ecosystems in the world, which makes it a desirable innovation hub. In this podcast, we speak to the people driving the future of food, researchers, entrepreneurs, and venture capital investors. Welcome to Food Tech Stars, with Karma Oren and Merav Oren, co-founders at ACT Food Tech. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Asha has been working at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem for almost 14 years now, beginning as a lecturer in 2007 and progressing to a full professor in 2021. Prior to establishing her lab at the Robert H. Smith Faculty of Agriculture, Masha graduated cum laude in chemistry in 1994 and continued directly into PhD in theoretical chemistry, graduating in 2001 from the Hebrew University. She worked as bioinformation and group leader at Carex Pharmaceutical before her postdoctoral position at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Professor Masha Neve's lab studied bitter and sweet molecules and the receptors using in silico, in vitro, and physics methods. She's intrigued by the sense of taste and is aiming to understand how bitterness and sweetness are elicited and modified by molecules. Wow, Masha. <laughs> First, we are so excited to have you here, really. Thank you for having me. Unbelievable what you're doing. And you know, let's dive into it. Let's start with talking about taste. So what about the sense of taste that intrigued you and made you begin studying bitter and sweet molecules and the receptors? So actually, I got into taste um, in the following way. Um, The taste receptors are part of a large and amazing family of receptors um, called the GPCRs. And actually, there are about 800 of different types of these receptors in in the human genome. Uh, Half of them are smell receptors, odorant receptors. And then, um, you know, dopamine, opioid, histamine, uh, adrenergic, uh, all of these receptors belong to this family. And also um, bitter, sweet, and umami receptors uh, also belong to this family. So um, when I was in New York, I was studying um, other members of this family, actually rhodopsin, which is a receptor that is involved in vision. And when I got the position um, at the the department where I I am now, it's biochemistry, food and nutrition. Um, I was looking for members of this family of these GPCRs that will be most exciting and relevant for my department. And I chose, and I'm really happy that that was my choice. I chose taste receptor GPCRs because they are a little less studied than smell receptors. And there was Professor Micha Naim who studied them uh, in in the same department. Now he's retired, but um, he was studying them. And I thought it was a good choice. And I'm very happy about it because it encompasses, uh, you know, questions about molecular recognition. So how a molecule binds to the receptor, but also how we describe in words what we taste and also how this influences our behavior. Um, so it really spans, you know, like, like from psychology to chemistry and biology and physiology because these receptors are not only expressed or not only appear on our tongue, in the mouth, it, it is actually now known 
known um, that they appear in different tissues, including brain and heart and nose uh, and uh, reproductive system. So, so like it's 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 one topic, but there's a lot around it <laughs> that can be developed. It's actually huge, and I think we're just you know seeing a tiny, tiny, tiny part of this, right? Yeah, it's hearing about. It. Yeah, yeah, there is still a lot that is unknown, and yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a very you, you can study this topic with very diverse um, tools and with different questions. Okay, it sounds amazing. So how did you know that you wanted to go into teaching? Was there a specific moment that convinced you to pursue your PhD and become a professor? So first of all, I have to say that the main thing for a professor, for me, is research. And teaching is something that we do, but that was not the reason that I chose this um, career. It, it really was about research. And I knew, so I knew, so let me say maybe, so you can do your first degree, then second de- degree, which is Master of Science, MSc, or can be part of a PhD. So it would be direct PhD. Um, and this is the PhD. And after that, and that I knew uh, for sure, like I always knew that I will get a PhD. But then the question about actually becoming a professor, uh, it's a little more complicated because you first have to go for for postdoc, this postdoctoral fellowship that usually you go into a different country. And then to come back uh, to get a position at the university, typically start as a lecturer or senior lecturer, lecturer and then you can advance to professorship so i always knew that i wanted a phd i thought i wanted to be a professor when i was younger then actually during my phd i kind of got i guess a little discouraged (laughs) at some point and i wasn't sure anymore and after my phd which was in theoretical um, chemistry i moved into biotech and into biology. And after that, so it was a very like unconventional path. Then I went for a postdoc. And at that point, um, I think midway of my postdoctoral experience, I started to think again that I I might want to pursue an academic career. And and that's what happened in the end. It's a long journey. It is. It's a great journey. Yes. And you have to have a, a lot of belief in order to do that. Sorry, a lot of? Believe. You have to believe in this path, you know, in this journey. Absolutely. Actually, in my case, it was my husband who believed in me. <laughs> we always need one. We always need one. Yeah, because it's yeah, because it's not an easy path. And, but this is also um, one of the reasons um, I'm so excited about the Wiser uh, initiative, because I think you need to believe and you need people to, to help you believe in yourself. And so... Yeah. So now I want to pay it forward. I t- totally agree. I totally agree. I wake up, you know, again and again with this notion. This is so amazing. I yeah. mean, your journey is really something else. <laughs> this is the journey for an academic uh, career, except in my case, I had this uh, kind of uh, detour into biotech and startup company, which I loved, which was really, um, really exciting and interesting. And that was the the way I actually changed. I went from uh, chemistry into biology through this experience. Um, But this is not a typical path. So this is usually not something that people do or uh, are encouraged to do if they want an academic career. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what, you're really leading me to my next question, which will be, what's the one thing you wish you had known when you began your academic career? Um, That I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think we need to know that in anything we do in life, right? I mean, but but I think there are other things that it's not that questionable, you know. Um, but this is one thing that I really like. I really wanted it, and I was really unsure that I can get it. And and I think this is the thing, yeah, that I would tell to my younger self that yeah, I can definitely do it. So and again, we're going again to empowering you, empowering other women. And according to the UIS data, less than 30% of the world's researchers are women. What do you believe are the next steps to bring this average up as, as, a, as a person who actually made this journey? Um, so I think there are lots of things that need to be done. And actually, there are a lot of people trying really hard to, you know, to do it, to promote this um, uh, on different levels at the universities, at the um, Council of Higher Education in Israel, at the, uh, I, I mean, many people are trying, men and women are trying hard to um, to improve it. I would say, I would mention a few things. Um, I think um, mentorship is really important because, you know, because in some things that probably it is similar to what you do um, also in, um, you know, in, in the startup uh, world, Many things are not like they are not written. It's just wisdom that is is um, told from one to another. Um, and so, if you don't have the right uh, sources of information, you just don't know how certain things are done or not done. And so, I think um, mentorship is really important. Um, and we, I chose to focus on uh, on this um, period where women are already made this extremely difficult step of. Uh, going uh, abroad, um, and we we want to mentor them to help them come back to Israel, um, and not you know not to lose them um, there. So this is one step. I think if we are better at guiding and helping uh, postdocs to come back to Israel, this can really change the numbers of women in Israel academia. The other thing that I think is important uh, is to normalize career breaks because. Uh, very often in the academic world uh, and maybe in other career types of career, um, you need to show productivity like all the time, right? You have to excel, but to excel all the time at every step of your career. And um, it actually doesn't make sense because sometimes you do need a break. Like, for example, if you're having children or, you know, if you're also occupied with other things, uh, family related or so on. And I think another point, for example, now there there is this huge problem with uh, COVID, um, a lot of burden that fell on women more than on men, unfortunately, that's, you know, that's what the statistics, what the facts are showing us, uh, taking care of, of children at home and taking care of other family related things. And so now there may, may be a gap uh, of a year or two in women's careers, uh, less productive in writing or um, getting um, obtaining grants and so on. And um, I think it is really important to understand that if somebody is talented, it's okay if there is a year that, you know, less productivity is coming out, it's fine. Um, and that that is, I think, um, that would help uh, women. And I would say one other thing maybe is to see which monetary incentives can be used. For example, I would say that no public money should be spent on sponsoring uh, panels, men-only panels. So if there is a conference or if, uh, you know, if there is a public company 
or or anything visible and important, uh, we should not accept having men only at the panels, at the top management, at the this. this 100%. Are- I mean, just lead the way. I'm with you. I mean, I'm just, you know, we're behind you. Whatever you do, we support this very much. I, I don't think you're behind. I think you're also I also the- didn't know the word yeah. manals. Sorry? Never heard the, the word manals. Manals, yeah. It's men only panels. Yeah. Interesting. Sad and interesting. <laughs> you know, uh, one day I just saw uh, this, uh, somebody was just sending me an invitation for a panel and they were all men. So in the same moment, I sent it to a senior person that I know was heading this panel and said, first, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go online to see the panel. Second of all, I disagree with this uh, choosing only men where we're 2021. Couldn't you find any women to lead this? And the third thing I'm recommending you to change this still, it's it's in the early stage and before people really registered. So just change that. And you know, this lady who's heading this panel, she said, thank you so much for lighting this or putting this here and I'm going to change it. She, she actually did. Mm-hmm. And since then, every time I see panels men, I'm sending those messages to the, to the uh, organizers and I'm always getting a very positive uh, feedback on that. So it's up to us. I, I totally agree because in many of the cases, it's just be- people did not notice um, that's the easiest, right? If they just didn't notice and then you direct their attention to this uh, problem, then it's easy to change. The other level of difficulty is that they did notice, but they like didn't figure out or didn't know whom to invite. And to address this, uh, this there are many like repositories of women on particular topics. There are many initiatives like that, so that to make it easier for people to sp- to find speakers, diverse speakers um, on different topics. Um, so this is, uh, you know, so th- there couldn't be, I don't think even it's an excuse. It's really, sometimes it's difficult. You don't know. So, so these repositories. I think what Karin said, being proactive is the way to change. Yeah. It's like and to I suggest who all, could be a speaker. It's all of our responsibility. Yeah. yeah. To yeah so to, to mention this and then say you could invite this and that speaker maybe, or yeah. Totally. Great. So, uh, Masha. Can you tell us about your um, transition from researcher to being a startup founder? I mean, how do you plan on using your experience and background in science to contribute to the startup? So I, so in my case, it was kind of backwards because I was a, I was a PhD student and then I was a researcher. I was not the founder. I was um, uh, a researcher in a startup company. And then I went back to academia and I'm still yet to, to open my own startup. This is something for the future. I think... In, in the direction that I did it, so working in a startup and then going uh, into academia, I even though it was very uncommon at the time, I actually think that that was one of the things that prepared me most of all this and maybe building our house, which was also like a lot of, you know, you had to do a lot of organization and moving people and pushing things forward. But this and and working in a startup prepared me in the best way uh, for opening my own lab, because opening your lab in academia is a little bit similar. You know, you have to hire people, you have to do the, the renovations, you have to decide which equipment to buy, you have to and then you have to get i mean so there are some similarities so i think that actually that was very helpful in terms of my uh, future uh, plans i mean it's i want to do it i think there is a little bit of a gap so in academia we always want to be very very thorough and very deep and very sure about our findings and in the 
you know, in the startup worlds, it's sometimes much more about fake it till you make it or, or kind of taking a risk, actually taking a risk. Yeah. Being less accurate, but just, you know, jump into the water. Yeah. And this, uh, yeah. So, so this, I think is maybe, a, it's, it's very different from, you know, how you are really always trained in academia versus how it is in, uh, I actually also do believe that this more adorable approach is, uh, is good <laughs> and a better bridging or more um, tolerant bridging or more, uh, le- you know, longer times for bridging between um, basic or semi-applied, but not really applied science towards applied science would be would be really helpful. But yeah, but anyway, but in the future, I plan to come back to the to the innovation and startup uh, as a founder as well. So it actually leads me to the next next questions. When we always say that there's a huge potential, we're always talking about that, saying, how are we going to see more women in tech leading startups? If they're coming from academia, and there's so many of them talented like yourself, they're probably going to be uh, you know, advised or, uh, you know, have this courage or the passion to open their own startup. So how can we push them there? How can we continue? And and do you actually believe in this uh, transformation, uh, increasing the number of women-led ventures by estimating that those women from the academia are going to do so and are going to join us in this ecosystem? What do you think about this? So first of all, I think, unfortunately, there are not that many jobs in the academia. So I think certainly there there will be uh, enough people with PhDs who are um, who will be willing and, you know, suitable either because they don't want to be in academia or because there is no um, opening in the academia who will uh, want to um, to start to to go into startups. I think the programs like MBA PhD programs that combine um, professional technological research with MBA, um, I think it's a very good program that might might be helpful for you know growing the next generation i think also the the faculty club uh at the faculty of agriculture the uh, innovation um club led by by uh, students is also helping uh, you know like socialize so um so i think there is a lot of place um and opportunities for uh, phd's men and women um, to to go into developing you know companies and and um, and I think it's important on every I think it's important during PhD to develop these skills um, and the connections that are relevant for that and that can be either through um, PhD MBA programs or through um, innovation and, and entrepreneurial clubs like the Facultech at the Faculty of Agriculture. Um, I also think that, uh, and, and I think there should be additional routes, additional uh, career development options that are more closely related to industry. And I think there are some attempts to develop that. I think it's really important because currently uh, it's it's lacking. This, this um, skill development and socialization and network uh, building is lacking for PhD students in general, um, not, not just for me, women, but uh, for women in particular, maybe. And I also think that for professors, so like myself, there, there's the more potential. So not all of the potential has been um, um, utilized yet. So I think there is still much more that can be done. 
and we should think how. I, I'm not sure yet, but I, I'm sure there is. We definitely want to take this out of this podcast and definitely meet you over coffee and discuss this later. Great. Yes. Totally. Wow, Masha. <laughs> You're truly, truly amazing. I mean, well, thinking of listening to everything you said, what do you hope to accomplish for the um, upcoming years? <laughs> Uh, do you have anything else you can think about? What's your next mountain climb mm-hmm. or whatever? I think definitely we have now developed very cool computational tools for discovering modulators of taste. Um, and so definitely we want to explore it further, both for food-related topics and because, as I said, taste receptors are expressed uh, not only in the oral cavity, but also in other tissues. Uh, we have hope to develop tools for discovering additional physiological roles um, of these receptors. Uh, This is in terms of of research in the lab uh, and maybe translational potential for that. And I also will be really happy to see, you know, to keep seeing my students and postdocs growing and opening their own uh, research labs or startups. Um, I've been very happy and lucky so far with the placement of students coming from my lab in in you know some are in biotech uh, in israel some are in in like government uh, related positions i have an alumna of my lab um, antonella di pizio she has opened her own independent lab in germany Um, and so seeing you know the next generation i think this is uh, this is probably the most amazing thing. Wow. So I hear about your inspiration and you have become my inspiration. And, uh, and I want to thank you so much for being here with us. And it's just, you know, a tip of the ice hearing what you have to say. And there's so much more to learn from your experience, from your vision. Uh, but thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank Kermit. you for being here. Thanks. It was great having you here. Thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.